Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Justice amid injustice, the man who killed three generations of the Afsal family in London, Ontario, is found guilty. And while that verdict is a relief to one family friend, she says she still feels unsafe. A very public public servant. In Mexico, a non-binary magistrate and vocal activist is found dead. A colleague tells us the LGBTQ community is feeling a terrible sense of loss and a terrible sense of foreboding. Rest in peace. Amal Elsana Al-Hajjuj describes her powerful friendship with Canadian-Israeli activist Vivian Silver and says she and others will carry on Miss Silver's push for peace despite the way she was killed. Reinventing the whale. Dominica is creating a world-first marine reserve for sperm whales, describing them as prized citizens, a status that is partly due to their helpful, climate-friendly poop. Usually we burn the candle at both ends, but tonight we'll light just one end of 55 candles to celebrate the anniversary of As It Happens, and we're hoping you'll light up when we ask for your help. And let's resolve this once and for all. Yes, they saw people in half and keep pigeons up their sleeves, but a new study finds that magicians are actually better adjusted than the rest of us, which our magician guest helpfully confirms. As it happens, the Thursday edition, radio that always checks its sorcerers. After just six hours of deliberation, a jury has found Nathaniel Veltman guilty of murdering the Afsal family. In June 2021, the London, Ontario family was out for an evening walk when they were struck by a truck driven by Mr. Veltman. He killed three generations, grandmother Talat, her son Salman and his wife Medea, and their 15-year-old daughter Yumna. Her nine-year-old brother survived the attack. After the verdict, Medea Salman's mother, Tabinda Buhari, talked about what the verdict means to her. While this verdict does not bring back our loved ones, it is a recognition by the justice system that the perpetrator of these heinous crimes is indeed a murderer and a terrorist. His actions were intended to drive people apart. This trial forced us to return to that intersection once again. The dreadful crossroads where the very best and worst of humanity converged two and a half years ago. That juxtaposition between the diabolical intentions of a hell-bent criminal and the love expressed by beautiful, teary-eyed strangers has become a catalyst for unity and justice. That was Medea Salman's mother, Tabin de Buhari, speaking outside the courthouse in Windsor, Ontario. Yasmin Khan was a close friend of the Afsal family. We reached her in London, Ontario. Yasmin, does this verdict bring you any peace? Yes, it does. It gives me a lot of peace because this shows that um, we are moving forward as Canadians to understand that Muslims are human beings and that it is a statement to the world that this was not what happened was not right and we need to take extra steps to make sure that this does not happen again have you spoken to the family yet i have not spoken to the family yet however i like speaking to my direct family members who were also very close um to the family everyone is there is a lot of relief um, and it's because we didn't we didn't think that this would go th- in this direction. To be very honest with you, 
um, when things were being released to the media at the very beginning of the case, we genuinely thought, there we go. Uh, he's going, he, he may win. Um, and it was very disheartening and it was very emotional. So seeing that the jury took this stance, um, it's a big relief and it feels like there is humanity in this world and there is humanity in Canada. I know you considered the Afsal's family. You were particularly close with Yumna. What did she share with you about the dreams she had for her future? From from the last time I spoke with Yumna, from what I remember, is that she she just wanted to work hard and she just wanted to make her family happy. The, the last time I had spoke, spoken to her, she was going into grade nine and she still did not know what she wanted to do yet, but she did want to help the world. And she always tried to make sure that she, uh, she could put a smile on a person's face. And she was very giving, just like her mother. What kinds of things did you do together? You were a sort of a big sister, I guess, to her. Uh, yes, um, we. So we we sort of drifted apart when um, I got I had to go to university, and she she started high school. But the times when we were young, um, we would uh, we would sing uh, songs from The Little Mermaid together. Um, we would sing songs from Cinderella together and Aladdin. Um, <laughs> And uh, we, when my mom and I would um, would always go to her place and ask her mom to let us let us take Yumna to our home for the day, and then I would do Yumna's makeup, she would do my makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, we we would always have fun, and then we would always tell my mom to sit down, and we would take over the kitchen, and then we would fail at making chocolate chip cookies um, because we were not able to read the recipe book properly. Those are a lot of beautiful memories. Yes, yes. We try to make pizza, but the dough never grows. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was good times. Our listeners um, heard a little bit before our conversation began um, that uh, from Tabinda Bukhari, Madia Salman's mother, and, and she talked about that intersection, as she put it, quite powerfully, where the very best and the very worst of humanity converged. And I mm-hmm. wonder what it's like for you to pass that intersection now. Every time I pass by it, I honk. I honk away and I put I put my arm out of my window and I, I show everyone a peace sign. And that is to remind everyone that all we want is peace. And all these, all these, like the people who passed away, Madiha, uh, Brother Salman, and his his mother and Yumna that passed away, they just wanted peace, and they were the most peaceful people. And as much as that intersection hurts me, I I push through, and I and I I take that as a symbol of peace, and. Usually, to get to the mosque, I have to take the route, and I have to pass that intersection. And we've all come to terms that the reason now we have to pass that intersection is so we can remember them and make a prayer for them. So they're getting a lot of prayers now, mm. and that we see it as uh, as something positive. How is the little boy doing? He's it's eleven. Now. He's a very strict. He's yeah, he's a husband now, and um, he's very strong. I I'm sure he misses his family. I'm sure he misses his mom and dad very de- dearly, and I'm sure he misses his sister the most. He's keeping himself busy. He has his support, keeping him busy, but I'm sure for him nothing will be the same. There were a lot of comments of support, you know, from the mayor of London from others as well, um, and Ms. Bukhari spoke spoke about that today as well, the support they're feel- they were feeling. Uh, and I wonder how you've, you've been feeling as a young Muslim woman in London, Ontario. That's very tough to talk about because, you know, after that happened, you would expect things to change. You would, th- you would expect people to realize that, you know what, 
even though I wear a hijab on my head, I'm a human being still. I have a heart. I still want to go have fun. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Unfortunately, people still see me, my brothers and sisters, people in our community, they still see them as different. They still treat them differently. I, I was hoping to say that, you know, there's, there's a decline in the amount of Islamophobic attacks. Unfortunately, no. We're still not safe. I, I still have to make sure that if I need to walk out at night, I have, I have someone with me. And if I don't have anyone with me, I have someone on the phone with me. Or I'm always watching my back. When do I need, when can I stop watching my back? Yasmin, please take care. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Yasmin Khan was a close family friend of the Afsal family. She's in London, Ontario. Vivian Silver's mission will live on. That was the message today as friends and family said goodbye to the Canadian-Israeli peace activist at a memorial service in Israel. The 74-year-old was originally thought to have been taken hostage when her kibbutz was attacked by Hamas-led militants on October 7th, but earlier this week her family confirmed that she'd been killed after authorities identified her remains. Today, Ms. Silver's loved ones talked about her activism and her deep commitment to peace and vowed to continue her work. Amal Alsana Aljouj joined the memorial service virtually. She's a longtime friend and colleague of Vivian Silver. We reached her in Montreal. Amal, after after so many weeks of uncertainty, what was it like to say goodbye to Vivian today? I'm still not ready to say goodbye. I am still feeling her presence. I still hearing her words. I still imagining her face. I was I was hoping the whole month that she will emerge from the dark and she will bring the message of peace to everyone and and now I feel like I'm asking myself about our journey together and all these 25 years advocating for peace and I I guess I I need to hear her voice saying to me stand up we still need a lot of work to do I'm so sorry for your loss and her family's loss, Amal. I was really struck by the, your essay about Vivian Silver and your first line. You say, our 25-year friendship is something from the realm of the extraordinary. What made it so extraordinary? The fact that we are not hiding behind our differences and different identities. We were so clear about who we are as a Palestinian, uh, as a Jew. We didn't uh, hide ourselves behind these things. And uh, and we were tough. We, we I challenged her. Uh, Vivian is someone who really um, believed in things when she was able to see them uh, implemented or a way to implement them and I was someone who used to come with big ideas and I remember Vivian always saying please slow down I don't want to chase you but the minute she's convinced and the minute the idea became practical she would put every everything she would put her soul to make this idea into reality mm. we 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 really built a true partnership and we we argued and we we had fights we cried and we hugged and that kind of partnership is something that you wouldn't find especially in our area where where everything is paralyzed everything is either black or white and the in between space is so fragile and and really vulnerable given how hard she worked to achieve peace, how hard you worked together when you found out about the October 7th attacks and then knowing how she was killed. How do you how do you process that? She was working to end this conflict. 
yeah, I still processing this. It's absolutely very hard for me. She was the one that I would call every time if there is something that I'm happy about, if there is something that I I need to take a decision. And what happened is 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 a reminder that we women carrying this message where the men are the one who taking the decision to start the war is all related to the women position and status and and i i always thought that we needed more power and more positions that really grant us some authority and power to to impact the world and by us just marching and doing all this work that it's amazing we might be facing some realities just like the one we faced on October 7 that puts all of our work into a dark space. What would she say, do you think, about how this conflict is unfolding? I believe if Vivian was with us, the first thing she would say, stop the war, cease fire, and let's talk. I'm sure, because I was with her in different wars, both of us were under the attack, and and she and myself were absolutely very, very strongly advocating for ceasefire. War always is something that everyone would lose. No one would win from war. And even if it's hard these days to see this vision, but this is the only vision, this is the only way that I can see that save the children in both sides. I was also really struck in your essay by the photograph at the very top of it. It's the two mm-hmm. of you. Uh, you're laughing, you're smiling, your arms around each other. Can you tell me about that moment? Yeah, this uh, photo was uh, taken, you know, we were giving an award. And uh, when the photographer asked us where do we want to take these photos, we decided we want to do them next to her kibbutz. And, and we were laughing because this is how we greet each other. We laugh and we we cry at the same time. If we go to a, a closing ceremony of one of our projects, we stop at the door and we look at each other when, and we say, promise me you, you are not going to cry. And she would say, no, you won't. You are not going to cry. And all of a sudden, when when we when we are inside and something is like very emotional happening, both of us will, will start to cry. Is that how you remember her, that moment? I remember her like this, and I also remember her uh, because in the summer I went to my village uh, and she came to see me. So I absolutely remember her face asking me, are you planning to come back? Uh, We need you here. And uh, that sentence was the first to jump on October 7. And I feel that guilt in a way. um, That you weren't there? Yeah, that I wasn't there. Yeah. Why? Because, you know, everyone who advocates for peace and justice and in the occupation should be there because it's not the same. Crossing the checkpoints in Kalandia, when you are in the villages, when you are in the cities, when you are trying to see how people live together and trying to find the shared space for Arabs and, and Jewish to live together, it's it's very different. So for me, not being there is really something that I I feel, absolutely, I feel guilty. Amal, I appreciate your time and my condolences again. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. We reached Amal Alsana Aljouj in Montreal. She's a friend and former colleague of the late peace activist Vivian Silver. tortured artist, the troubled musician, the melancholic poet, all well-established, tormented figures. But you never hear about the troubled, angst-ridden magician. 
And a new study might explain why. Research published in the journal BJ Psych Open shows that when tested, magicians actually score lower on psychotic traits and antisocial behavior. And they aren't just better adjusted compared to other creative types. They're better adjusted than the general population as well. Sarah Crasson is a magician who took part in the study. We reached her in New York City. Sarah, even before the results of this study came out, did you always feel more more grounded compared to other performers? Well, magic requires a lot of imagination, mm-hmm. and it, it sort of requires you to, to let your ideas run wild, and you think of something impossible, and then you figure out a way to do it. So I've never really thought about grounded as a key, as a key uh, mm-hmm. element of being a magician, but this, this result was a real surprise this way. <laughs> you were expecting psychotic straight across? <laughs> well... I had I really did not have a lot of expectations. Yeah. Um, the one thing that I was really curious about was we, we did a little bit of looking at the autism spectrum, mm-hmm. and we included a set of questions to look at uh, traits that are, that are related to being on the autism spectrum. Because a lot of magicians come to magic in, a, in an unusual way. A lot of male magicians tell their, their origin story, and they come to magic between the ages of 8 and 14, mm-hmm. and it's often because they have a, uh, a social deficit. They, um, if they can do magic, then maybe the, the school bully won't beat them up and take their lunch money. It's empowering for them. It gives them some uh, social approval because they can do something cool that the other kids can't do. And so I guess you know, with, with, no ex- with no personal expertise, I have wonderful uh, professors of psychology that I worked on with this, uh, Professor Gil Greengrass from Aberystwyth University and Paul Sylvia from the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. And I insisted that we put in this autism mm-hmm. uh, panel because I suspected that's what we were going to find. And it turns out I was absolutely wrong. <laughs> Do you think, though, uh, you know, that, that just broadly speaking, that social connection that working with other people, do you think that that, that, that has a, it does have a role to play here in why you saw the results that you did see? I think that magic is a really special community, and it definitely has an impact on people because we are so incredibly collaborative and we work together. And it's rare in a lot of fields for people who compete for gigs to then not only go out for dinner afterwards, but to workshop stuff in front of each other and share ideas and teach each other. And magic is a, is a sharing and collaborative community. And I think that the warm embrace of the magic community helps a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of artists live very solitary existences. They may, you know, work with, with other artists later on or, or speak with them and share, but the act itself is, is solitary, whereas magic shows are not. Absolutely. You, at some point, you have to get out there and you've got to share it with people. Magic is not a one-person activity. It's, it really is collaborative between the performer and the audience. Well, tell us about your act I, and, and Bamberg. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes, Bamberg. Uh, Bamberg is my performing partner mm-hmm. and Bamberg is a bear. He is about 18 inches tall. Stuffed but, bear. Uh, large and fierce <laughs> in his heart. Yes, a stuffed bear, let's just be clear. Uh, well, I, I wouldn't use that word in his presence, okay. but yeah. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> we're talking about magic. I think, okay. I think we're safe. And just tell me a little more about it. And we, we do magic together. Um, and we do all kinds of magic. He does a little card, card magic, but his favorite mm-hmm. is magic that has a little edge of danger. So we do a tandem straitjacket escape where we each get strapped into a straitjacket. <laughs> given, what, <laughs> given what we're talking about, that's funny. Yeah, it's, I don't, Of course. <laughs> and we race to see who can get out faster. Um, he shows off his psychic powers. And it's a, it's a really fun act. And it's, it just invites the audience to step into this world of illusion and play and enjoy the journey. And you're less psychotic than others. <laughs> You sound sane to I'm me. Gonna, I'm going to put that on my business card now. <laughs> Certified, less psychotic. Sarah Crasson, less psychotic than others. <laughs> what do you think we should take away from, from this research, though? I think the real takeaway here is that 
we need to learn more about creativity. There's this understanding that creativity goes hand in hand with, with psychopathology, with mental illness. And there are tons of examples of artists and authors and poets and musicians who have real, you know, real issues and, and uh, mental illness. And we have this kind of commonly held understanding that perhaps that mental illness is necessary or is, goes hand in hand with the creativity. And what is really fascinating to me about the results of this study is that magicians are an incredibly creative group of people who don't follow that trend. And so perhaps there's, there's something else going on here that we need to learn more about. Sarah, I'm glad we could speak. Uh, say hi to Bamberg for us. I will give him your best. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Sarah Crasson is a magician, and she is in New York City. As a magistrate, Jesus Ociel Baena had a necessarily public profile. But as Mexico's first and only openly non-binary magistrate, they made their profile a priority. Magistrade, magistrade. Ajá. Es cierto que para estas elecciones el Instituto Electoral de Aguascalientes va a contratar a banda LGBT como nosotras. Ay, chisma gacha. A ver. Sound from one of Mexican magistrate Jesús Ociel Baena's most recent TikToks, in which they encouraged LGBTQ plus disabled and older people to seek employment with district and municipal councils in the country, and in which they could be heard unfurling their trademark rainbow-colored fan. On Monday, the public servant was found dead in their home in Aguascalientes, alongside a second person, later identified as their partner. Authorities say they suspect a murder-suicide, but the magistrate's family and members of Mexico's queer community are far from convinced. Ricardo Baruch is an LGBTQ rights activist and a member of the National Council to Prevent Discrimination in Mexico. We reached him in Mexico City. Ricardo, what do you think happened to Ocial Baena and their partner? Well, uh, it's complicated because uh, me, myself, and like the community, the LGBTQI plus community in Mexico, thinks that it was probably a, a hate crime, mm -hmm. uh, given the history of like threats that uh, Le Magistrade had uh, been getting lately, and so on. And 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 that's uh, the the way that people would refer to OCL, even if they didn't know their name, based on the, on their title of magistrate. <laughs> Exactly. Mm -hmm. Le Magistrade uh, was uh, actually like an um, uh, interesting uh, like word mm -hmm. uh, because it's like, the, like a, the first title of a public servant, which is neutral, not masculine or feminine. Mm -hmm. In terms of the investigation, uh, you've talked about the questions that you and others have. Uh, th their family has called it, quote, completely unthinkable, the, the scenario that authorities um, are, are describing. And I know that they had had police protection assigned to them because they were facing threats. Do you know if police or that protection were there at the time of their deaths? Actually, yes. Mm -hmm. And that's something that it's, uh, of course, like that, that's been uh hard to refute because um like the pol the, the the guard who was with with ocl all the time mm -hmm. was basically like in the parking lot outside of the the house federal authorities have said you know that they, that they're they don't want the case to be closed prematurely and they don't want to throw out any line of investigation as they put it so are you are you reassured do you think you'll get answers I think so, because right now the federal authorities are uh, under a lot of pressure from not just the LGBTQI plus community, but actually like the society at large, uh, given that we know that the uh, justice system in, in Mexico, it's in general really weak. But for these particular type of cases, it's even weaker. So like that's why mm -hmm. we're trying to make sure that the truth is found. Let's talk about the person at the, at the heart of this case, Ociel. Um, what can you tell our listeners about them? Well, Ociel uh, became quite famous during the pandemic because uh, they uh, was the, the, the first public servant who uh, came out as a non-binary person mm -hmm. and who started 
posting uh, very cool and fun videos uh, on TikTok, but also other social media that made uncomfortable a lot of people who are not familiar with the non-binary identity. But even um, like it, it made question a lot of the LGBTIQ plus community about like how inclusive we were with this identity. So um, Ociel was always like a very uh, happy and nice person who would uh, try to not just like make activism from uh, uh, as uh, like with the general public, but mm -hmm. also show like the LGBTIQ plus community that we are we have the right to become public servants and we have the right to be who we are wherever uh, wherever we are and whatever job we have. And that's also something that uh, Ocel will always be remembered for. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, Ocel also became like a really dear figure for the LGBTIQ plus community. And we could see that uh, when on Monday evening, um, after uh, getting the, the news about their uh, murder, like, uh, like so many people went out to the streets in uh, tens of uh, cities across Mexico and in, here in Mexico City there were like thousands of people marching on the streets with candles and like remembering of course like, like demanding justice but also remembering like such a dear figure for us. What did Ocel mean to you? I know you met a number of times. Uh, Ocel was always like uh, this person that you would find that it was not just like the show in social media, but actually like the real person that was uh, really meaning what they were saying. And yeah, I was like really sad and heartbroken uh, that day. And since then, like me and many other uh, activists um, have been trying to work with different uh, institutions, with the, 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 the media, the social media to make sure not just that the, the, the case is not close, but actually also uh, to demand that the, the hate speech that has been going around during these days uh, stops because it's, it's been really bad. And at the same time, in, in the past year, uh, Mexico has achieved universal same-sex marriage. There's a ban on conversion therapy now. You mentioned the gender-neutral title that OCL had um, officially. But given what's happened and the things you just listed, how do you feel about Mexico's progress in terms of rights and inclusion for uh, LGBTQ plus people? Well, Mexico and I would say some other countries in Latin America have had uh, like an interesting uh, journey in terms of like uh, legislation and protection to, towards LGBTIQ plus people. Because on one hand, we have like very progressive laws. Like, for example, our first article of our constitution actually says that sexual orientation uh, is not a reason for discrimination. But that doesn't translate into like real actions. And we are still the, the second country uh, with more hate crimes towards uh, LGBTIQ plus people in the in the in the Americas. This was the third uh, murder of an act LGBTIQ plus activist in the country. And probably there are more than a hundred uh, murders in general. So uh, those of us who are like very visible, of course, like we always try to be, be careful, but of course, like those who are the most, the, 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 the main targets, unfortunately, are mostly trans women. And so in that sense, like we want to make sure that we walk together with our trans uh, brothers and sisters to make sure that they are also uh, safe and that hopefully uh, this uh, unfortunate situation will be uh, a breaking point to change that. Ricardo, thank you. Thank you and, uh, and especially to the media who have been like uh, making visible the situation that we're going through in Mexico right now. Thank you. Ricardo Baruch is a member of the National Council to Prevent Discrimination in Mexico and a colleague of the late Mexican magistrate Jesus Ociel Baena. We reach Mr. Baruch in Mexico City. Hello. 
Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. The population of Dominica is around 70,000, but Dominica's prime minister would add about 200 to that total because he would include the 200 creatures he calls prized citizens, the sperm whales that live in the seas around the island. Now he and his government say they'll ensure that those prized citizens are treated with the care they deserve by creating the world's first marine reserve for sperm whales. It will cover an area of 800 square kilometers off the island's western coast. Shane Garrow has been working as a science advisor to the government of Dominica. He's also the founder of the Dominica Sperm Whale Project and a scientist in residence at Carleton University in Ottawa. We reached him in Roseau, Dominica. Shane, you've certainly spent a, a lot of time with these whales, thousands of hours, but can you put us in the water with you when you're doing that? You know, when the sperm whales are around you? So we're on small boats uh, as opposed to large uh, research vessels. And we leave the dock every morning as the sun's coming up and start searching for the whales. Now, we're really lucky working with sperm whales because they make sound basically all the time when they're underwater. We have to imagine that this is an animal that lives in a world of sound. Most of the ocean is dark. And so when it's searching for food, sperm whales make echolocation clicks uh, where they can hear through the darkness where their squid prey are and they talk to one another. And so we use underwater microphones to search for them uh, and then spend as much po- time as possible alongside them out at sea. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to remember that these are animals that are longer than a school bus, yeah. you know, and might weigh as much as nine or 10 of them. So even on our, you know, 40 foot or 10 meter sailboat, these are animals that are the same size or bigger than the boats that we're on. Uh, and so you so, sense their you presence know, they, in more ways than one. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Sperm whales are very relaxed when they're at the surface. Mm-hmm. These are amongst the deepest and longest divers on the planet. You know, these are animals that are spending a lot of time relaxing and oxygenating their blood before they make, you know, hour long dives and search for squid. So when we talk about the creation of this this marine reserve, what will it change? It makes three big changes. It's making a traffic separation scheme. So the bigger ships won't be able to go wherever they want anymore. They'll need to come in through a traffic lane in and out of the ports here in Roseau. And that's something that's an international standard, whether you're in Halifax or Vancouver or any major port in the world. Uh, so that that's a big one because it reduces the likelihood that whales will get hit by ships, which is a known way that, mm-hmm. that these whales are dying. Another one is that it separates all of the traditional uh, fishing uh, gear that the fishermen folk here in Dominica use from the ships. And so as a result, it, it reduces the likelihood that the whales are getting entangled in, in plastic uh, equipment. And the last one is, is that it grants the government of Dominica the authority to manage the way that people interact with whales and the environment that they live in. And that comes down to whale watching or swim with the whale tours or even professional media who are coming to to film the whales for documentaries. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, all of those activities, shipping and fishing and, and whale watching, are now going to be managed in such a way that the whales are being considered uh, and so that it can be done sustainably across the long term. You've talked about in the past this idea that in some ways sperm whales are, as you put it, fighting climate change on our behalf. And it it has to do with a very natural thing that they do. So tell us about that. (laughs) Yeah, well, like any other mammal, sperm whales defecate. They poop at the surface. And like any good scientist, uh, you know, we collect that poop and figure (laughs) out what's in it. That's, you know, part of the fun of being a biologist that works with uh, animals in the wild. Uh, But sperm whales are a part of this amazing system in the ocean that's called the whale pump. And what's happening is that the animals are eating deep sea squid, you know, 850 meters below the surface in pitch darkness. Uh, And then they're coming to the surface and and defecating or pooping at the surface because actually poop is very buoyant. And so if you want to do a free dive down to 800 meters, it's good to leave that behind. But what happens when they do that is they're essentially, you know, fertilizing the surface waters of the ocean. And it creates these plankton blooms, these tiny microscopic 
uh, plants and animals uh, that live in the surface waters. And when they build their bodies, they use carbon and they're fixing that carbon out of the atmosphere and locking it up in their bodies. And when they die, it rains down all the way to the bottom of the deep ocean and sequesters away that carbon. And so in some respects, just this one species uh, you know, is helping us to fight climate change by sequestering excess carbon into the oceans. Uh, and that's really important when we think about it as a conservation perspective, because, you know, pre-whaling in the industrial age and, and before, you know, we estimate that there were over two uh, million sperm whales worldwide. And now we're down to less than that. Mm. And so we're conserving, you know, a local community here to act as a, you know, car- carbon heroes, if you will, on our behalf here in the Caribbean. You gave them nicknames, right? These yeah. whales? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, my, my kids who live in Ottawa, you know, know these animals as individuals. They truly are individuals. These are, you know, ocean nomads that live in small families here in the Caribbean of maybe seven or eight animals. And it's grandmothers and mothers and daughters who live together for life. And the young males in their early teens will set on on this solitary adventure, maybe around the world. And so... You know, they truly are families in the same way that you and I think about it. You know, I have a mom and a grandmother and those families have different dialects. So the animals here are uniquely different. The way that they've learned to live is different. Sperm whales are sperm whales all over the world genetically. And so we can talk about 800,000 sperm whales seeming like a lot of uh, a very high number. But when it really comes down to it, the whales here, the Eastern Caribbean clan, all of the whales that speak the same dialect here, that live their life in a unique way, Mm -hmm. need to be protected at the local level. Because uh, it turns out that these cultural uh, traditions, the secrets they've learned from their grandmother's grandmother and not in their genetic code, is one of the reasons that these animals survive. And so we need to start our management to be focused on preserving cultural diversity just as much as genetic diversity. And so it's important for national governments to protect the animals that live alongside them rather than look at it just as a global stock of animals all over the world. Thanks for this, Shane. Oh, it's my great pleasure. That was sperm whale researcher Shane Garrow in Roso Dominica. You may have seen the images of the fishing town of Grindavik, Iceland, where a fissure in the earth has torn through the middle of town. Giant cracks and craters split the main roadway, and houses have been ripped apart by days of around-the-clock earthquakes. And beneath all that destruction, scientists say, is an underground corridor of semi-molten rock. All of this points to the potential for a volcanic eruption, which forced all of the town's roughly 4,000 residents to evacuate on Saturday. Grindavik resident Kristen Birgis' daughter is among them. Her brother's family has joined hers at a nearby vacant home that belongs to a relative. We reached her there. Kristen, how many of you are there in that house in total? Uh, We are uh, uh, me and my three kids Mm -hmm. and my brother and his uh, wife and four kids. We are in um, two bedrooms. Okay, it is. It's also late uh, in the evening. There has everyone settled down? All the younger children uh, no. in bed? No. <laughs> no, we're we're all totally out of routine now. Yeah, uh, that's why I'm situated outside because there are a lot of crying inside. They are not used to this uh, kind of routine, and I think they're sensing the stress and the feeling yeah. in the parents. Yeah, I think it's just like we have young kids. Yeah, they're between the so. ages of one and eleven. Yes. So how have so, you been managing yeah. all in, you know, in such a small space, knowing what you had to leave to get there? Yeah, it's it's been difficult, to be honest. It's been actually really difficult. It's something uh, none of us have been through before. So we're, truly, we're really trying to figure out our feelings. Uh, a lot of people have been telling that they, they haven't, you know, get, they, have got, they haven't gotten their head around their, the feelings they're having right now. So we're just trying to cope, trying to just be there for the kids 
I haven't been able to go to work yet because uh, I have two kids in, in kindergarten and uh, we're not having any any kindergarten at the moment. Yeah, schools are closed. So I've been trying to work away from home when I can, but the kids are really demanding at this moment, really demanding. I know our, our so. producer was trying to, to reach you earlier and we caught you in, in a di- <laughs> dinner time, which is hectic for most people with, with children, but this is yeah. a different circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is. But uh, in in the middle of all this, it's really important that you try to feel um, what you are thankful for. Mm. Because if you, if you don't do that, you just totally lose it, I think. That's so very wise. I've been trying to just like mm. be thankful for that we got, about, got out of the soon. We're thankful that we can, you know, live all together at the moment and yeah. have each other's support. And the community in Grindavik is just really, you know, it's really uh, unique. I'm born and raised in the town, and I've been working there as a teacher for 10 years. Mm-hmm. I was uh, part of the uh, town council for eight years, so it means a lot to me, the town. So it's just like devastated, and it breaks my heart to see what's happening at the moment. How worried are you that it won't be there for you? I just, I'm really worried, and I just can't think of that thought to the end. Yeah. I just, I, I'm trying to be optimistic. A lot of people are trying to be optimistic. So maybe we will one day be able to go back when they fix, when they, because all the infrastructure is really damaged at the moment. So it will take a long time, months to build it up again. And that's so, just from the, the earthquakes that you've been feeling yes, leading from, up to yes. this moment. Are yeah. You, and are a lot you, of houses are just so damaged that you, you will, we will never be able to, to live there again. Well, what's the latest you're hearing? Kristen, about the possibility of an eruption? Uh, it's really possible. They have a, the odds are just like really high at the moment. Just yeah. refreshing the, the web pages where we can find the new, latest news about what's happening. Oh, it must be kind of maddening, though, about waiting. Yeah. <laughs> and the irony in all of this is um, on Friday when all the seismic, seismic activity got really intense, I was working in the city. So I didn't feel it there until they got really big because we were working on a web page, information for people because of the earthquakes and what they needed to do if they had to evacuate the town. But later that, that evening, the whole town was evacuated. So I was just like, maybe if we had done it a bit you know, earlier, but nobody could figure it out. I mean, the, the Mother Earth is just, you know, she goes her own way. Mother Earth goes her own way. Yeah, you're yeah. right about that. We talked about how, how young your children are. The age range, though, I'm sure you're having different conversations with each of them. So what are you telling yeah. them about why you had to leave so quickly? Well, it's 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 amazing how, how little they ask at the moment. But um, my middle one, he's like five, and he was like asking, will you never move back to Grindavik, Mom? No. Oh. Uh, and I was like, I don't know, hopefully. And then my oldest one, he said, Mom, I'm not sure if I want to go back if we're continuing having these earthquakes. Fair question. So, Fair comment. Yeah. Yeah. What so do you say? Yeah. Well, I say hopefully we can go back and feel safe. And, and that's what I want to feel. I want to feel safe. But uh, a lot of specialists, they're saying the... Uh, the Reykjanes Peninsula has woken up and what we will see in the coming years uh, will be earthquakes and eruptions. I mean, we had uh, the first eruption 2021 and then 22 and again this summer. And uh, perhaps we're having uh, eruption number four and the second one in this year. So it's a bit scary. It's a bit scary since the peninsula hasn't erupted for like o- over a thousand years. Yeah. I think it's the beginning of a, an active period. It sounds like the scientists yeah, are saying. Yeah, that's what they say. So what 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 will it? I know it's still early, and, and you 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 don't want to think that you might not be able to go back. But have you and your family been talking about? You know, where if you don't feel safe, where you might go, making plans to move. No, we haven't been there yet. Mm-hmm. The, the only thing that we we're like. We have this house in Moselspar where my uh, aunt lives. She's she's away now, so we can live here until the middle of uh, December. And now, like, 
thousand homes are, are, are asking for a apartment or house to rent, mm-hmm. which is difficult in a situation in Iceland now because uh, renting is, is difficult. But uh, we already have house where we can all live uh, for some months. And everybody are showing, you know, the whole nation is really sim- uh, showing a sympathy and understanding and everybody are willing to do whatever they can to help us and, you know, to show their support. And that's what, you know, helps me to get through all of this is feeling the support of the nation. I'm glad you have that support, Kristen. Thank you mm-hmm. very much. Thank you. Kristen Birgestadter and her family are evacuees from the town of Grindavik, Iceland. If you attend university, there's a good chance you're on a budget. But if you're attending university in Ontario, there's a good chance your university is also struggling to make ends meet. The Council of Ontario Universities says that eight of its 23 universities are facing deficits amid four years of domestic tuition freezes. But that could change. A new report written by a government commissioned panel is calling on the province to end its post-secondary tuition freeze and increase per-student funding to universities and colleges. Kevin Walmsley is the president and vice-chancellor of Nipissing University. We reached him in North Bay, Ontario. Kevin, what would an end to this freeze mean financially for Nipissing? Well, you know, what we were looking for from this report and from our provincial government is a path forward towards sustainability for the universities. And if the the recommendations were were taken uh, on face value, this would place us on a, a better path than we've been on for some time. What does that look like, better path? Dig into that a bit for me. Well, we've uh, we've experienced a 10% tuition cut uh, for four years of tuition freezes, but certainly it, the grant funding has not been renegotiated or, or changed uh, in its pattern since 2019. So kind of a double-edged sword, and universities are, are dealing with these inflationary costs without any revenues uh, to balance things out. Was it approaching a matter of survival for Nipissing University or you know, impacting quality of education in your view? Yeah, Nipissing University uh, as a northern institution has uh, unique challenges. Uh, it costs more to provide an education here. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a model that, that we value, and many students who don't want to go to large universities value a, a small class size model. And so it's an issue of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nipissing University has had difficult financial times for the past 10 years. We have been working on cost efficiencies for more than 10 years and probably, to be fair, have have cut too many staff members. And so uh, we're in the position where we would wish to grow a little bit. And we need to realize more revenues on a long-term basis because, you know what, it's we want to be here not just five years from now, but 25, 30 years from now. The report also says the province has has a role to play here. It, it suggests Ontario should boost its per-student funding for universities, which is just 57% of what the rest of Canada receives on average. So what's your sense about how willing the provincial government is in Ontario to increase that funding? Well, you know, we've been uh, always been a partner to the province, and we have been explaining our financial position to the province for some years now. What this report does, and, and we certainly value the work that our panel experts have put into it, it's an announcement to the government that the time is now. This is a reaffirmation of the, uh, the fundamental opinions of all of the universities that something needs to change now uh, because the system is in trouble. You mentioned students a moment ago. Students, of course, also uh, value affordability. Um, The panel is recommending a 5% increase in tuition for the next school year and then 2% increases every year after that or at the rate of uh, inflation. Why should students, who many are, you know, as you know, already struggling to make ends meet, why should they bear this burden? Well, I think, you know, in in a perfect world, we would argue for a for full grant status for for students so that fundamental changes aren't made on the backs of those students to limit accessibility uh, for Canadians. Um, but this is the model that we have in Canada. The money needs to come from somewhere, whether it's tuition rates or operational grants. And so currently, 
uh, it's, it's the Canadian model to have the users pay part of their education. And, and certainly the tuition rates that they're paying do not reflect the real costs of an education. And that part has to be made up by government grants. And, and students, some students have pointed out in criticism of, of the panel that, that there wasn't a student voice on that panel. But you're likely hearing from students, I'm sure. What kinds of things have you heard so far? Well, in the, the Student Day of Action, I participated in it uh, last week, and our students have uh, have called for free tuition, for example. And so I would say that any president in Ontario would not want the balance uh, of payment to fall on the backs of their students. Accessibility is important to all of us. And I will say at Nipissing University, 62% of our students access the grants and loans program. So we are a very accessible university, and we need to make um, education affordable uh, for our Canadian students. You mentioned your Canadian students, but when we talk about the freeze, uh, many institutions such as yours have focused on international student tuition, and it's much higher, as you know, than for domestic students. But the report points to the financial instability of that um, you know, how concerned are you about that reliance and the impact on those students as well? Well, we have certainly seen, uh, with respect to international education, uh, bringing in international students, uh, when there is an, a global issue of significance, it can have a significant uh, impact on a university in, in, in an in-year budget, uh, and certainly in the long term. And so the universities in Ontario will do their best to recruit from as many countries as possible to ensure diversity and to not um, over-rely on, on particular nations. But we have seen, of course, significant populations from China and India in our universities. And uh, it, it is prudent planning uh, to not rely upon on singular nations uh, for recruitment. So we, of course, are aware of that. And, and to be honest, um, International recruitment is something that's relatively new to Nipissing University, and we want to do so uh, at a modest rate. We want to diversify our campus. We recognize the cost for international students, and, and our tuition rates are very close to the true costs of education here in Canada. Will there be any financial relief for them, or do you expect them to continue to pay more? I think that they will, uh, they will pay, uh, they pay more than Canadian students mm-hmm. because the, the Canadian taxpayers are paying a portion of the true costs of educating a student, which are well beyond the tuition rates that we have in Canada. So what happens next? Well, I'm hoping for a quick resolution, because uh, 2024 25 is going to be upon us before we know mm-hmm. it, and, uh, and we would like to see those changes be implemented as soon as possible and to begin negotiations with the province about um, making our institution sustainable. And so we welcome that partnership, and we'd like to get to work as soon as possible. Kevin, thank you. You're quite welcome. Take care. Bye-bye. Kevin Walmsley is the president and vice chancellor of Nipissing University. He's in North Bay, Ontario. Fifty-five years ago this week, on November 18, 1968 to be exact, co-hosts Philip Forsyth and Harry Brown turned on their microphones and broadcast a brand new program across Canada. Hi, I'm Philip Forsyth, and here we go with Hour 2 to As It Happens. Welcome to Quebec and Ontario, and welcome back, Maritimes. Here we are with Hour 2, and for us, a six-hour trip across Canada. We began in the Maritimes. We welcome to our bosoms. Ontario and Quebec. My name is Harry Brown, and I'll be with Phil for the remainder of the evening. Since as we go through each new time zone, this is a new show, we feel it is only fair that we explain to you how we're working. We're, as Harry said, going through the five different time zones. With uh, each of you in those time zones, we'll be there for two hours. We're going to roller coast across the country, talking to you about different stories and ideas, and we hope to be hearing back 
from you, the listeners, with some of your own ideas and views on the show. And we'll be uh, roller coastering, as the phrase, which our producer has coined for this occasion, and the others which we hope will follow it. But the end is five hours away. That's right. So stay with us as it happens. <laughs> you can tell if Phil and Harry are really excited to welcome Canadians to their bosoms. <laughs> they were, were they aging as they read it? They were tired. Rightly. They were tired. Not sure about that expression to uh, start the, bosoms, the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you just love saying it. Yeah, mm. we, but maybe with Doctor Who vibes with the yeah. I like our yeah. theme better. It's but played at the wrong speed. And in case you missed it, this show used to be a six-hour extravaganza. Yeah, six hours rolling live across each time zone across the country. I assume that is why they're talking so slowly and quietly. <laughs> Five and a half decades later, it doesn't feel like this roller coaster has slowed down at all. I will say in radio years, we are definitely pushing 100. <laughs> We've aged beautifully. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, which means we haven't really aged at all. We look great. Well, thanks. On behalf of the show, <laughs> onwards and upwards. We would like to indulge in a bit of nostalgia to mark this milestone. We are not buying Hawaiian shirts and shifting into Freedom 55 mode. If anything, we'd like to think that we are hitting our prime, or at least we're fully clear of our midlife crisis. We have returned that convertible yeah. we bought. I, I wanted to keep it. But mm. you you might remember our 50th anniversary bash. It was fantastic. But we, we wanted to celebrate this time, this milestone, by celebrating you, dear listeners. As you heard Philip say on that inaugural episode, you're on this roller coaster ride with us, and we want to hear from you. So it might be a favorite segment, a guest you'll never forget, something you learned, or a personal memory that you associate with this show. Let us know. Call our talkback line at 416-205-5687 and leave a voicemail. Again, that is 416-205-5687, or send a voice note or an email to aih at cbc.ca. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.